As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first met someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Our scripture lesson today, verses from Exodus 20, 1 and 3, and then Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 25. So the first is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 25. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Strength. These commandments I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk, walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and, your, and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of peoples around you. For the Lord God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and may go, may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulation, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as in the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us to, that will be our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you might be speaking to us through it. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Be with me a sinner as I proclaim it. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm excited to be back this morning. We were in Japan for the last two weeks, my wife and I. Everyone keeps asking how the trip was, which the answer is it was great, and asking me to speak Japanese, which truthfully I don't do even when I was over there. Tried, I don't try to say things because I always feel like I'm going to sound like one of those Americans who's just like, sayonara, or something like that. But, um, but it is good to be back. And it's also good to be back because we are starting a new a sermon series within a sermon series. This is like an inception thing here at Kish. Um, we have been, for the last five months or so, preaching through the book of Exodus. And we have reached chapter 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. And we're going to slow down and work our way through those commandments. But first, just to review where we've been, we said a few weeks ago that Exodus really splits kind of in two halves as a book. Um, in the first half, it's this story about God's salvation of Israel. And so Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and God comes through Moses and delivers them. He brings these plagues until at last Pharaoh lets them go. And then when Pharaoh changes his mind, he brings Israel through the Red Sea and destroys Pharaoh's armies in it. And as they wander in the wilderness, he provides for them, gives them water and bread from heaven. And in all of that, we see him bringing Israel out and establishing them as this new people, this delivered and free people. But then the question arises for Israel, what does it mean to be this new people? How are we supposed to live? How do we worship this Lord who saved us? And so then the second half of Exodus, which really starts in kind of chapter 19 or here in chapter 20, is about answering that question. And one of the first ways it does that is with these Ten Commandments. In a couple of minutes, we're going to turn and look at the first commandment and discuss it this morning. But since this is our first sermon in this kind of mini-series, before we do that, I just want to zoom out a little bit and talk about these commandments as a whole and how we think about God's law here in Scripture as a whole. And I want to do that by naming four mistakes that I think we can make when we hear these commandments. I want to name these up front before we start looking at the specific Ten Commandments. First of all, the biggest mistake we can make with commandments in Scripture is to put the law before grace. To act as if Christianity is about obeying these rules, and if we obey them, God loves us, and if we don't, he doesn't. We talk about that one a lot here at Kish, so we're not going to spend a ton of time this morning digging into that mistake, but we just need to be clear about it. If we look at the Ten Commandments, they don't start with a commandment. They start with a declaration of God's salvation. In verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God says, I am the Lord and I have already saved you. Before you were obeying these commandments, before you even knew them, I had saved you. Therefore, this is what you do in light of that. We cannot change that order. In scripture, we always see God's grace and salvation come first 
And then God's commands and call for us to live come in light of them. God um, calls us to obey only after he saves and forgives and welcomes us in. And if we make God's love conditional on obedience, if we make it something that we earn by our good works, then we will turn this law into something that destroys us rather than saves us. In a real sense, if you have not come to know and trust Jesus, this sermon series on the Ten Commandments isn't for you. It is in the sense that it's God's will that all of us live this way, right? But it isn't in the sense that the the tools and strength and life that is meant to empower us to live out these commandments in our lives, that only comes from knowing Jesus first. And it's crucial that you know him before you seek to follow this. All right. So that's the first mistake. And then at the same time, though, there's a second mistake that's kind of the other side of that coin. And that's the idea that because grace comes first, Christianity is lawless. That grace is permission not to follow God's commandments. In our reading from Deuteronomy that we heard, we see this interchange, this conversation. It is assumed over the years that kids, as they grow up in Israel, are going to wonder, they're going to wonder like, Like, what's up with this law we have to keep? Timmy the Canaanite doesn't have to keep this law. And they're going to come and ask their parents, like, why do we have to do this? And here's God's response. He starts in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 6 and says, Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. So that that, that much of the answer is what we just said, that salvation comes first, right? That God has moved and saved us. But then next verse, And the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. So it says, This God came and he saved us, and he commanded us to obey these laws. Therefore, our good... And for teaching us how to follow him. Grace is not opposed to the law. Grace, rather, is the thing that calls us to obey. There are a lot of ways to explain that. But let me just offer one. Imagine that you are an immigrant to a new country. All right? That's actually one of the analogies the Bible uses for becoming a Christian. That we um, are immigrants brought into the kingdom of Jesus out of our earthly citizenship. Now, on the one hand, right... Jesus's kingdom welcomes us in on the basis of grace. You cannot buy citizenship there. You don't have to, like, take a test and, you know, and learn all these facts in order to become a citizen there. You are welcomed in by grace. But on the other hand, if you become an immigrant anywhere, you recognize that then you're being called to live as a citizen of this country. And you have to follow its laws and pay taxes there and work for its good. In earthly terms... A lot of immigrants recognize that. It's been noted by, by a lot of people that study migration that when people immigrate to another country, they tend to be much more like patriotic and much more invested in the country when they, when they move there because they have this sense of like, I have to live into this citizenship that I have. And the same thing is true for us when we think about the kingdom of Jesus, that while we are brought in by grace, we also need to be taught how to live as its citizens. And that's the role of God's law. It does not make us a citizen, but it does teach us how to live as members of the kingdom of God. All right, that's two mistakes. 
Number three, the third mistake we can read is that some people read the Ten Commandments and are like, well, okay, but isn't that just Old Testament stuff? They can pit the Old Testament against the New Testament as if this stuff only applies to Israel and not to us as Christians. So here's the thing. Throughout the book of Exodus and the three books that follow it, there are a whole bunch of commandments. And it is true that the church historically has understood some of those commandments as applying only to Old Testament Israel and some of those commandments as applying to us today. Um, And you'll hear people sometimes who complain about that as if it's an inconsistency. They'll say like, well, yeah, you know, it says thou shalt not commit adultery, but it also says like don't eat lobster in the Old Testament. But the answer to that is that the Bible itself recognizes that there's a couple of different types of commandments that it gives. The way the church has summarized that is to say there's at least kind of three categories of laws that you find in the Bible. Three categories that the Bible itself seems to recognize. First of all, there are ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws. In the Old Testament, there are a bunch of regulations that have to do with the specific way that Israel is supposed to live and worship that teach them about God and mark them off as separate from the other nations. That includes things like the sacrifices that they were supposed to offer and the temple worship. That also includes things like laws about things that are clean and unclean, like clothes or food. That's the lobster thing is a part of that. Um, And the purpose of those ceremonial laws is to teach Israel things about God and themselves and the world. But within the Bible, within the New Testament, we see those ceremonial laws done away with. For example, in Acts 10, Peter is about to visit the Gentile Cornelius, and God gives him a vision explicitly withdrawing laws about clean and unclean foods. And the same thing is explicitly said in other parts of the New Testament about other parts of the ceremonial law. And the reason is that the purpose of the ceremonial law was to prepare Israel for Jesus. Paul talks about it like this. He says these, and he means the ceremonial commandments of the law, are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and he is the true temple where God dwells with man. And he is the, you know, his, his death makes us truly clean in an absolute way before God. He fulfills the ceremonial law, so we don't have to follow it anymore. All right? Then there's a second type of laws we find in the Old Testament. Those are called the civil law that govern the political life of Israel as a nation. So Israel is both a church and a state in the Old Testament. And as a result, when you read the Old Testament law, there are laws about like how to punish crimes and ways you're supposed to care for the poor and how you're supposed to structure the government and society. And the church is no longer also a nation. That's another thing that's changed now after Jesus as every nation is being gathered into God's people. And so again, those civil laws aren't binding on us either. We don't have to, you know, punish criminals and, you know, in the way that it happens in the Old Testament law. And in fact, the church should not be punishing criminals at all, right? Because that's something that belongs to the state. We can still learn about justice and righteousness as we read those laws. But again, it's clear within the Bible itself that those laws wouldn't apply anymore. But then there is a third type of law, which is what we call the moral law. Moral law, meaning revelations about what God thinks is righteous and what God thinks is sinful. 
And unlike the ceremonial and the civil law, the moral law is just as true and binding on us today as it was 3,000 years ago. God wired the world since creation to work in a certain way. Certain things are good and certain things are evil. And those realities do not change. So when we read the Ten Commandments or other moral parts of the law, those are just as binding on us as believers as they were on Israel. And in fact, you find that in Scripture too. That the New Testament, even as it explicitly says that some parts of the law are withdrawn, also explicitly applies things like the Ten Commandments to us as Christians. All right. And then one last mistake. We can pit the law against our call to love. We can pit God's commandments against our calling to love. This one comes up a lot in our world. We shouldn't worry about following the rules, is the idea. We should just love people. And often that is keyed off of the words of Jesus. There's this famous interchange between Jesus and one of the Pharisees. Here's how Mark recounts it from Mark 12. Starting in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? All right, Jesus, so which commandment is the most important? And here is Jesus's famous response. He says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So what happens sometimes, even for Christians, is we read that and we say, oh, see, like, just love is all that you're supposed to do. The other commandments don't matter. There are a couple of problems with that, though. First, those words of Jesus are quotations from the Old Testament. And specifically, they're quotations from the Old Testament law. Um, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is from Leviticus 19. The command to love God, first of all, is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, which we read this morning and comes right after they restate the Ten Commandments, right? So this is not somehow in contrast to that. In addition, Jesus is not saying these are the only two commandments. Just because they're the greatest commandment doesn't mean that they're the only ones you have to follow, right? I mean, just because doctors, when they take their oath, say, first, do no harm, that doesn't mean that as long as you do no harm, right, you're a trained medical professional. Jesus sees the law of love as a summary of the commandments. They all lead to love and show what love is. Indeed, it's worth noting, if you read on in Mark 12, that the Pharisees are actually, they agree with Jesus about this as the greatest commandment. So this isn't somehow denying the rest of the Bible's commands. Here's the point of that. In stressing love, Jesus is not saying that love is opposed to the commandments. Rather, he sees love as explaining what God's commandments are for. The reason we're called to follow the Ten Commandments is because we are called to love. And this teach us, teaches us what that actually means, what it actually means to love people, which is why we titled this series, What Love Looks Like. And we need that because love is a word that is ripe for abuse. If you have ever been in a dysfunctional relationship or had, a, you know, a kind of hard friend, or I mean, if you've ever just had a kid, right, you know that there are times when people will say, well, if you loved me, that means this. 
And what you think to yourself is, no, that is not (laughs) what it means at all. The commandments are God's way of explaining what he means when he calls us to love. All right. So those are themes that we will return to throughout our series. But with those things kind of in the back of your head, that those are mistakes we want to avoid, let's zoom in and talk about the first commandment. And the commandment itself, like a lot of these, is simple. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now first, let's consider those words. We might have a couple of questions if we just sit and think about that commandment. One question people ask sometimes is, wait, so are there other gods? Because it kind of talks as if there are. And the answer to that question is no, but also yes. (laughs) On the one hand, the... Scripture is very clear that there are no gods in this world like the Lord, right? He is the creator and king of heaven and earth, and nothing else, no, no power, no being can compare to him. It's not like, like God has to sit down with Zeus and Krishna or whatever and like make a plan together for what the world is going to work like. In that sense, there are no other gods besides the Lord. But in another sense, of course other gods exist, because gods are objects we worship, and we worship all kinds of things, right? We will come back to that in a minute, but just bear in mind that while Scripture views those as false gods, they are still very much gods in the sense that we can worship them. And then still looking just at the words of the commandment, we also might wonder, well, what does it mean before me? Does that mean that we can worship other gods? Just got to keep the Lord as number one? And the answer to that is that the word before is maybe not the clearest translation. Which is not that it's wrong, but it, the Hebrew preposition there, it does not mean before in the sense of like a higher priority. It means before in the sense of in my presence. Like, what is this I see before me? Another God? That is not allowed. All of life is lived in the presence of God. He's everywhere and knows all things. So this commandment is not saying, keep God as your highest priority, but you can then keep some idols, you know, on the list too. It's saying that um, we must worship God alone and not try to have any other gods in his presence. That becomes clearer if we combine it with what we read from Deuteronomy 6 which is really a kind of longer discussion of this commandment. Here's how it starts. We heard Jesus quote this, but it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So there's two ideas there. First, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, by which it means the Lord is unique and above all other things in the world, which is what we have already said. And then it says that we are to love the Lord with our whole heart and soul and strength. Which is to say that we can't divide our affections between God and other things. All of our emotion and spiritual allegiance and energy are meant to be directed towards God. And so there's nothing left for anything else. That's also stressed in verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. And take your oaths in his name. So recognize that the Lord alone has true power in the world and is the only one worthy of sort of fear and honor. 
and serve him alone, work for him alone and not other gods. And take your oaths in his name, which means see him as the source of your confidence and your identity. Or one more way to recognize it, if you read in Deuteronomy 6, God tells Israel that they need to watch out when they come to this promised land because there's wealth there and prosperity and, um, and that comes with a warning. That when they inherit it, verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So in this promised land, there will be lots of chances for compromise, lots of things to trust in besides the Lord, and Israel needs to watch out for that. So here's what all that is saying. We are trained, I think, by the world to view life as if there's just this kind of checklist of different things that we like. Right? There's work and family, and there's hobbies and vacations and houses and nice cars and our favorite TV shows and all that stuff, right? And in our world, with that checklist mentality, we, we are okay with the idea of saying sort of like God should be near or at the top of that list. But that isn't what this commandment is saying. It is saying that all of those things are good and fine, but that they are not things that we can really have compete with God. That he is in a class all of his own. And that inasmuch as those things, while they're good in themselves, would challenge our allegiance to him or turn us aside from him, that those things have to be laid on the altar. That's a challenging truth. And that can make us uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about that. But first I want to make us a little more uncomfortable. (laughs) So um, let me add one more image from our reading in Deuteronomy 6. If you start in verse 14, this warning is continuing that we just read. And it says, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you. And he will destroy you from the face of the land. The Lord is a jealous God. If you turn aside to idols, he said, he will bring judgment. That is not the thing we like to hear. I mean, what do we mean? God is jealous. Well, before we answer that question, we should note that that's not just an Old Testament idea. I think one of the things that happens um, when we come across statements like that is that we have this idea that the Old Testament God is sort of angry and jealous, and then the New Testament God is all like lollipops and rainbows or something. But, um, But the New Testament talks about God this way, too. So like from James... You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Or Paul, writing to the church in Corinth when he calls them to flee from idolatry, here's why. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right. So that said, what do we do with God's jealousy? Well, when we hear that, we immediately get uncomfortable because we all recognize that for human beings, jealousy is usually a sin. A jealous boyfriend or a jealous athlete, that's, you don't want to be a jealous person. The reason human jealousy is usually sinful is because it is usually claiming more than it is owed. Think about like a jealous boyfriend who gets angry when his girlfriend 
talks to or looks at some other guy, and he tries to forbid her to do those things. What's wrong with that? It's that he's going beyond his rights. In his case, he's going way beyond his rights because, first of all, he's just a boyfriend, right? And she has every right to break up with him and go her own way at any time. But even beyond that, no human being has the right to say, to demand those things of another human being, right? Like, no human being has the right to say, no, you can't ask the guy at Starbucks how his day is going while he gets you the drink, right? That's, you know, that kind of jealousy is going beyond what we have a right to ask. But even in the human world, there is an appropriate jealousy. It would be wrong for me to say to my wife, you can't talk to men other than me. That would be wrong. But it is within my rights to say you can't date other men, right? Not that that's an issue for us at all. But, but, that, you know, but, but there are ways in which I can say, no, there are things I do have a right to. I mean, my neighbor can't come hotwire my car and start running errands with it and think that that's fine, Right? Someone can't just take my kids and say, oh, they're my kids now. When we do work, we ought to get proper recognition for the work that we've done. Sinful jealousy is claiming things that we don't have a right to. But there is, even for humans, a righteous jealousy that asserts rights that I actually have. And that's the kind of jealousy that God displays. Because he is the Lord. He is, um, there, there are no other gods beside him, right? For, for his creatures, who he made, to worship some other thing that he made, rather than to worship him, is to rob him of his rights. And so we should worship him alone. All right. With all that said, how do we apply this commandment to our lives? How do we keep the first commandment? To answer that, First, we need to discuss what worship means. This is going to be a familiar theme to some of us and new for some others. But in Scripture, when we are told to worship God alone and not have other gods besides him, it does not just mean gods like Baal or Jupiter or somebody. Um, It's not just what we think of as religious worship. Instead, in Scripture, a false god an idol is anything that we give our allegiance to or put our hope in rather than the Lord. Just consider some of the things the Bible describes as idolatry. It's like from Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls people to flee temptation from all temptation to sin— And then he sums it up like this. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel describes pride as idolatry. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of money as a false god that we can worship. All sin in scripture seems somehow connected to idolatry. So how does that work? We'll start with the idea of love, which we said lies behind these commandments. Our choices and actions are always a result of what we love. That's true. Just in any given situation, I'm going to choose the thing I love and desire the most, right? I I don't say, like, well, what I want to have for breakfast is cereal, and so I'm going to have eggs, you know? I mean, and even when I do things that seem like I'm doing, you know, that I'm running contrary to what I love and desire— That's just because I'm loving something else more, right? Even if I say, no, I'm not going to have that bowl of ice cream, 
which I clearly desire. That's because I'm choosing to desire, like, losing weight or being healthy more. But those are pretty surface desires. When we talk about love, it goes deeper. Say that I'm trying to lose weight. Why is that? Is that because I want to be more attractive? Is it because I want to be healthier and live longer? And, and why do I want to do that, right? Do I want to live longer so that I can have more time to do good in the world? Or is it because I'm terrified of death, right? As I dig down into those things, at root, when you find the reasons behind your actions, those are the things you love. Those are the things you are worshiping and serving in your life. That is the God that you are loving with your heart and soul and mind. Sin is a condition of our heart, ultimately, a disorder of our loves. And all of our wrong actions ultimately come from worshiping those wrong gods, which means that all of our sin problems are really worship problems. And that's why this commandment comes first. Christians throughout history have recognized that you can't really break the other nine commandments without having first broken this one. That also means that trying to fix sin without turning from those false gods is always doomed to fail. We might change one specific wrong action we're taking, but if we're not worshiping the Lord, all we're going to do is replace that one wrong action with some other wrong action that's coming out of the idolatry of our hearts. So how do we change that? How do we worship God alone? Well, first, let me tell you how not to do it. Here's what you should not do, is that you should not try to just stop loving and desiring things. You should not try to just make yourself stop loving things. And that might seem weird because of what I just said, but let me try to explain it. Let's go into a little bit more detail about how those false gods work, all right? First of all, all of us have these deep heart desires, right? Deep desires in our hearts that we could name. Not, I don't mean like money or having a six-pack, which is not obviously one of mine or whatever, but, um, but these root loves. We want to feel significant. We want to be secure. We want to feel in control. We want to be important. Those kinds of heart desires that we have. And then we take those heart desires and we attach them to some created thing. Something that isn't God. We attach our desire for security to money. We attach our desire to feel important to sex. We attach our desire for significance to our children. And those desires... They're not bad, right? All of us have them. It's fine to have those desires. And those things are not bad. I mean, money, sex, family, those are all things that God made and are good. But what happens is that when we take that good desire and attach it to that created thing, that thing that isn't God, that combination becomes an idol. Our deepest heart desires attached to good created things become false gods. And once we recognize that, um, we can see the problem with the approach a lot of people take. Because we want to act, we are trained sometimes to act as Christians, as if those things that we desire themselves are bad. And like we said, that is not true, right? Um, I mean, the things that we worship as idols, money and sex and family or human relationships or health or beauty or pleasure, all those things are things God made 
and all those things in themselves are good. And Christians sometimes play this game where they try to convince themselves that they don't really want those things and they're bad, and that's not the answer. The problem is when we take one of those things and we take it out of its proper place and we start attaching our desires to it in a way that makes it behave like God. So the solution to that instead is to do a couple of things as we recognize that truth of our idolatry. The first thing is that we need to spend some time diagnosing our sins. We need to diagnose the things that we struggle with. So first we need to just name our sins, and that's something all of us as Christians are called to do, to daily be acknowledging and repenting of the ways that we have sinned. So we need to name them, but then we also need to ask why these are the sins we are struggling with. What are we looking to this thing to do for us? What desire am I trying to fulfill? And it's important that we do that because the answer is not always the same. Think about it like this. Let's say that you are struggling with unhealthy ways of relating to your body, right? That you've made an idol out of your physical appearance and you have unhealthy relationships with food and exercise and clothes and things as a result of that. So often our instinct would be to help someone who's struggling with that by telling them, look, you don't need to worry. You look great. You're beautiful. And that can help if what you're struggling with is a desire to be beautiful. And sometimes that's the reason for that struggle. Sometimes someone is so wounded or abused by the world that you know, they just don't feel like that, and so they're trying to capture that. But there's other reasons you can struggle with that too. For other people, for example, that, um, that false god of physical appearance is about being in control. You feel like the world is out of control and feels unsafe, but you can control your body and force it to look a certain way. And if that's your struggle, saying you're beautiful isn't actually helping because that's not the thing, that's not the desire you're trying to fulfill. In some ways, it can even feed into that desire because it's telling you that you, your control is working. Or maybe it's some other desire still. The point is that our hearts are complicated and our struggles with sin often come from different places. And so one of the tools that we can have as we fight against sin is to examine and ask, why are we doing this? What are the desires we're trying to fulfill? And then recognize and challenge those deeper idols of our hearts. So we need to diagnose our sins. But that should have limits, because just doing that all the time can make us kind of spiral inward and not really help us to move forward. So at the same time, the more important thing we need to do is worship the Lord. We need to actively engage in worship of the true God. And I don't by that just mean weekly gathered worship, although this is a part of that. At root, what I mean is that we need to do things constantly to remind ourselves that God is the one who meets those deep desires of our heart. That, that we need to remind ourselves of God's power when we are struggling with fear or longing for security. That we need to remind ourselves of God's love and kindness in a way that helps us in our struggles with acceptance. That we need to recognize God's calling for our lives and that he works through us and use that to help us with our struggles to feel significant. The best way to keep 
our desires from being unhealthily met by some created thing is to constantly be seeking to reattach them to the creator, celebrating the fact that in God, those desires are truly fulfilled. We need to cultivate hearts that rejoice in God, that reflect on who he is and how he loves us. And there are lots of concrete ways to do this in our lives. You spend time just reflecting on him quietly and in private, or journaling, read books, listen to sermons about him, study scripture, talk with brothers and sisters about the Lord, gather together with the saints and worship him. Those are all, those are all the things that we do in order to call us to worship God. But the key is to recognize that those things will not work if we are not in them seeking to remind ourselves of the truth of God. Those actions are not just spiritual motions we're supposed to go through, but they're opportunities for us to enter in with our hearts into worshiping and recognizing the way that God meets us and cares for us. The point in those things is to reorient our love back to God. Because as we close, remember that that is the point in all of this. Our call is to have God alone as God and love him with our heart and our soul and our strength. As we think about that calling, here's what I would invite us to recognize. That process that I just described, right, of reflecting on our sins and worshiping the Lord, that is not something that we will do easily or quickly, and it is not something we will ever fully accomplish in this life. We will struggle with sins our whole life, and if all of of our sin problems are at root worship problems, that means that we will struggle with idolatry our whole lives. We always have to rest on that grace and salvation that comes first. But that does not mean that this struggle is not worth doing. While we will never perfectly keep this commandment, it is in growing in our faithfulness to loving the Lord above all other things, that we will then grow in all other areas of faithfulness. The more we live that out, the more we love God and turn from idols, the more our lives will begin to be transformed. That's our calling, to seek each day to make this call to love God a little bit more true of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, cannot help, as I said, under all the Ten Commandments, maybe especially this one, reflecting on all the ways that my own heart so easily chases things besides you to meet its desires, and I repent of and acknowledge that, pray that you might impress on me and on all of us that you are sufficient and good and all we need. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.